trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shoveled well. I shoveled very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Yes, it is. And I welcome you to the show today. Whether you're a longtime listener or just, you know, testing the waters to see if wrong think might be right for you. I'm glad you're checking us out. Going to make it worth your while, too. Got some great stuff to talk about. We're going to talk about uh, the banjo player for Mumford & Sons leaving. Now, you may ask, why is that uh, important enough to, to take up space on a show such as this? It's a really interesting message. And, and we'll talk about uh, why their banjoist has resigned from a very successful band. We'll also talk about how consumer prices may be going higher. But uh, I've got a great essay here from a, a young economist by the name of Ethan Yang on how the market drives prices down. Bottom line is, you're living better than royalty was even just a few generations ago. And it may surprise some people to uh, learn that uh, we have a new national pastime. What, you say, could possibly take the place of baseball? Um, How about pretending? (laughs) No, I'm serious. Got a great article here from Paul O'Brien. And uh, Gary Gallus has an excellent, excellent article about uh, why an open mind is of no value when it is open to lies. And just for the record, this is one of the reasons why this program exists as as well as many others like it. I'm here not to solve all of the world's problems, but I am here to to hopefully give a few strategic kicks in the seat of the pants to people who value truth. People who want to better understand the world around them, more importantly, want to understand what they can do to shape the world in a positive way. And all around us, we have things that tell us, well, you can't, you're broken, you're not good enough. I think the best proof of this, I'm not recommending you do it, but if you were to sit up and watch late night television, look at the content and the tone of most of the advertisements that are airing during that time. You're pretty much being told, hey, you know, it's, it's too bad that your life is so terrible, but... You know, with this miracle toothpaste, you're going to do great. Or with this new miracle program, you can do something. Bottom line, though, we've been told, most of us, for for a very long time, that we are just not good enough. Someone who knows, someone who understands, should be making the important decisions in our lives. And not everybody buys into it, but enough people do that uh, there's there's a, a definite driver in our society where People are okay with being handed a script. Okay, here's what your life is supposed to look like. And oftentimes that uh, script follows a pretty predictable pattern. Okay, so here's what you do. You go to school. You stay in school. You get good grades. You uh, get a college degree. You get a job. You stay with that company and earn lots of money. You collect toys. You retire. You run out the clock. And then you die. Which, I mean, you know, there's nothing particularly wrong with that. I don't see anything particularly evil. But I do see a problem in the sense that inside each and every one of us, there is some degree of personal greatness. And I don't just mean, you know, you're going to go earn money and be another Tony Robbins out there doing motivational seminars. I'm talking about something that's much more personal, much more unique to you and to me. And figuring out what that is, tapping into that sense of purpose, living a life that's driven more by mission than by material desire. 
You know, if I hadn't experienced it for myself, I'd probably be skeptical. Yeah, 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 that sounds pretty lofty. Uh-huh. Whoop-de-doo, let's make a difference. But everything, and I mean every single aspect of your life, takes on more depth, more value, and more meaning when you approach it from this way. So I'm not telling you you should do this by all means. I'm just saying if you haven't considered it, it's worth considering. And it may just change the way you see yourself as well as the way you see the world. Okay, diving in here. Being perceived as closed-minded, that's something that uh, very few of us would aspire to, right? If someone were to introduce you, this is Brian, my closed-minded friend. I mean, I'd, I wouldn't be blushing for pride. I'd be like, whoa, <laughs> people are going to get the wrong idea here. But at the same time, if you're too open-minded, that can work against you as well. I came across an excellent article on the uh, Mises.org website from Gary Gallas. An open mind is of no use when it's open to lies. Now, Gary Gallas is a marvelous writer, and he starts right out with something that I think most of us would, would nod our heads in agreement with. And that is, in our world, there is very little people agree on. Kind of ironic, huh? I can agree with that. (laughs) Right on. Okay. One thing that seems to be an exception, though, is that having an open mind is almost universally well regarded, while having a closed mind is almost universally criticized. Now, however, however, he says such rhetoric presumes that what we are open or closed to is the truth. Now, think about that. Well, you don't accept what I'm saying because you're just closed minded. Well, if what you're saying is a load of fertilizer, I should probably be closed-minded. Gary Gallus says, that leads to some problems of understanding because we're routinely exposed to a great deal of nonsense, which we do not want to be open to, as well as to truth. Now, he says, that's particularly important to understand in a period where Americans have been repeatedly told to follow the science, say on mask restrictions, to prove they're not just obstinately closed-minded. When the main purpose was to open people's minds to falsehoods, and while at the same time, they've been browbeaten to close their minds to legitimate questions about things like vaccines or mandated closures or critical race theory and more. With both types of arguments used to reduce our freedoms. I love that he uses a quote from Leonard Reed, founder of the, uh, the Foundation for Economic Education, in a, a chapter of his uh, 1973 book, Who's Listening?, This was called Open Versus Closed Minds. Leonard Reed said, Open-mindedness is almost everywhere hailed as a virtue. A person of closed mind, on the other hand, is generally condemned as narrow, shallow, nitwitted. But of course, this poses the question, to what should one's mind be closed and to what should it be open? Leonard Reed said, I would like my mind open to truths yet to be perceived and closed to all nonsense. While no one knows over much, he says each of us knows some things, a good rule, close the mind on what one knows and understands and keep it open to what is not known and understood. In either function, one's mind serves him as a guide, helping him to avoid the ditches and stay on the road toward his destination. Now, Gary Gallus points out here, Reed begins by explaining why someone being closed-minded about something need not be an inverse indicator of their wisdom on the topic. And being open-minded on something need not be a positive indicator of their wisdom on the topic. Back to Leonard Reed. Reed said, the more one knows and understands, the more issues upon which his mind is closed. But although a closed mind may indicate the number of issues upon which a man has reflected and reached settled conclusions, 
it might also be a sign that one has achieved, has perceived rather next to nothing. The degree of closed-mindedness is not necessarily an accurate gauge of how much one knows and understands. So the lesson here, never try to estimate the knowledge and wisdom of others by how closed or open their minds. Leonard Reed says a person's mind may be closed with things he knows or sincerely believes and upon which he can act, or it may be closed and quite empty, receptive to no ideas at all. By the same token, a mind may be open, but open to every kind of idea, wise or foolish. Or it may be so open on every side that no idea can be registered there for reference or use. So the question is not entirely whether a mind is open or closed, but whether it is a working mind. And if so, to what purpose? Now, Gary Gallus points out that Reed then takes his view of what we should and what we should not be open to, and he asks a very uncommon question about it. What kind of openness would serve both ourselves and society, both those around us today as well as in posterity? Reed's answer is the idea that one's mind should be open to that which is not known or understood, and that our aim is to grow in knowledge and wisdom, gives rise to a logical and relevant question. How may we best serve each other as each of us pursues this end? By opening our minds to each other. And he says, by so doing, we expose what light we have gained and thus maximize the total enlightenment. Open-mindedness in its best sense. Now he says, unquestionably, this sharing process accounts for the greater expanse of knowledge and wisdom. We've inherited from the past and we're free to pick their brains, so to speak, to whatever extent we're willing to open our minds to their ideas. Likewise, we may pick the brains of one another among our contemporaries to the extent each is willing, always bearing in mind the personal responsibility to choose and judge which ideas to accept or reject and which ones are worthy of our sharing with others. As Ortega phrased it, the known is what's no longer a problem. So numerous and all-pervasive are our problems that the unknown must be regarded as infinite. The issues to which the mind is still open are problems rather than answers. Thus, the best one can do for others is to enumerate those ideas and propositions on which his own mind is closed and express what he believes to be true. I don't know why, but this just hit me in exactly the right way as I was looking it over. I'm going to come back. We're going to have a few more thoughts on this article from Gary Gallas. An open mind is of no use when it's open to lies. And yes, there will be a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Back in a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I do want to mention that uh, this program is made possible by phenomenal sponsors who allow me to pursue my work of finding, curating, and disseminating the best information I can without having to, uh, you know, go take a take a few side jobs. Not that I'm above that. I've done it before. I would do it again, but I appreciate them. And they include great sponsors like HSLAmmo.com, MonticelloCollege.org. Got to have a little bit to say about them a little later in the program. Pure-Light.com and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. So I've been sharing this article from Gary Gallas, An Open Mind is No Use When It's Open to Lies. And man, does he have some great uh, food for thought from Leonard Reed, who was the founder of the Foundation for Economic Education. 
And I love how Reed approaches this idea with, look, there, there's a time where it's okay to commit to the truth. In other words, things that you have studied out, things that you have hashed out that, uh, that you more or less have sussed out for your own, it's okay to, to not walk around in a total state of um, uncertainty. Well, I don't know, maybe murder isn't wrong. Oh, gee, I'll have to think about that. You know, right and wrong, Sometimes you learn this uh, through being taught by others. Sometimes you learn it through personal experience. Okay, that didn't work out so well. That was painful. I don't want to make that mistake again. But the point is, while it's good to be open-minded, there are those who will exploit open-mindedness to try to fill your mind with nonsense. So Reed advises on things where you are willing to commit to the truth. It's okay to close your mind. You've already done the hard work of sorting out that information and seeing whether testing it, whether it's, it's you know, holding up or not. The place to be open-minded are, are on those things that you don't know. And I think that's a great way to do it. Gary Gallus says, not only did Leonard Reed add to our ability to know what we're talking about with open and closed-mindedness, but he also provided an example, laying out things that his mind was closed to. In other words, core principles which he believed were true and solid premises from which reason from which to reason and evaluate behavior. He wrote, here I stand. I can do no other. Some will recognize that's a famous quote from uh, Martin Luther when he was uh, being forced to uh, defend himself before the diet at Worm. So these are the things that Leonard Reed was able to close his mind on because, again, he, was, he, he understood enough. He was ready to commit to the truth. Things like the Golden Rule and Ten Commandments. Secondly, a good society rests on individuals having high moral scruples and ethical guidelines. No organizational gadgetry, however deftly devised, can overcome moral and ethical deficiencies. Reed also believed and closed his mind after, after accepting the fact that government limited to administering justice and keeping the peace, equality before the law, is an essential adjunct to morality. How about this one? Government. Organized force can only inhibit, restrain, penalize. It has no business interfering in the creative realm. This is another truth he was committed to. Creativity stems exclusively from individuals acting privately, competitively, cooperatively, voluntarily. And no man who lives, no association, nor any government is competent to decide for any other where he shall work, what his hours or wage shall be, with whom he may exchange, or what thoughts he shall entertain. That's uh, something we could probably use a little more of today. He also believed freedom in transaction is an absolute principle. The value of any good or service is what another will give in willing exchange. He believed the good or bad politician is not the cause of good or bad government. He reflects the thinking of his constituents. When the thinking is good enough, then good men can and will be elected to office. And finally, obedience to one's conscience is to seek approval from God, not men. Pretty powerful stuff. Now, Gary Gallus says, Leonard Reed's closed-mindedness on certain principles as true provides us material for serious reflection about what we believe. And he reflects some ancient wisdom that is unfortunately more honored in the breach than in modern practice. 
He seems to be channeling Marcus Aurelius, who wrote in Meditations, If someone is able to show me that what I think or do is not right, I will happily change, for I seek the truth, by which no one was ever truly harmed. It is the person who continues in his self-deception and ignorance who is harmed. Further, Heraclitus, in uh, Fragments, suggests that there is a better term than closed-mindedness for Reed's approach. To be even-minded is the greatest virtue. Wisdom is to speak the truth and act in keeping with its nature. Now, Leonard Reed also provided us with a way to evaluate the quality of our own closed-mindedness. He said there is a reliable test as to whether or not one's closed-mindedness derives from a growing knowledge or from a lack of understanding. If from lack, there will be a sense of know-it-allness. If from growth, the more issues on which one's mind is closed, the better paved is his access to the unknown. This test merely emphasizes the obvious. The more one knows, the more he is aware of the unknown. Love that. Yes, I do have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. I would encourage you to please go to my website. Look up today's show notes. This is for uh, June 28th, 2021. And, and I would ask you, take the time to look at these articles, to follow the links within them. I, I'm not asking you to just, yeah, you know, like just got a little dose of uh, some great wisdom or food for thought today. And, you know, don't treat it like a snack. Treat this like a meal, a feast. One which you can pursue without fear of, you know, enlarging your waistline, but with, with uh, you know, the absolute consequence of maybe enlarging your worldview. If you want to propaganda-proof yourself, you've got to be willing to do the hard work of digging and researching for yourself. I can't guarantee that everything that I share in these show notes or everything I share on this program is, you know, the absolute truth. I'll never knowingly mislead anybody. And if I do make a mistake, if I share something that turns out, okay, we need to clarify that or that was false, I will, uh, I will issue the mea culpa and make sure that, that I'm, I'm correcting what needs to be corrected. But I'm begging you, check it out for yourself. Suss it out for yourself. Let's talk about uh, the new national pastime. I know we're right in the middle of baseball season. I'm not a huge baseball fan. Once upon a time, I was, eh, you know, kind of. Now... I don't know. It just doesn't hold as much value for me. In fact, this is true of, of a lot of sports. And it's probably because they become so politicized of late. I mean, I don't know if you saw the latest kerfuffle over the weekend was um, there was there was an Olympic trials event and uh, a, a young runner who picked up the bronze medal in this this trial event. Um, she was very upset. She was incensed, in fact, that uh, that someone would play the national anthem while she and her other athletes, the gold and silver medal winners, were standing there on the, the platform receiving their awards. And it, it just, I mean, it just seems so petulant and so self-absorbed. She's fidgeting, she's scowling, she's looking away, and finally she just puts a T-shirt up, you know, that's black activist, you know. I mean, it's, look, she doesn't have to love the national anthem, but it's it's like, is there any opportunity people won't use to draw attention to themselves and their pet cause? It's, it's a form of virtue signaling. And it's, I guess, a lot easier than actually just living as a decent person who understands that, you know what, sometimes things are not going to go exactly as I hoped they would. Or, you know, something may happen that runs contrary to my desires. I don't know why, but I, I reserve my admiration for the people who can actually just deal with it like adults 
and shrug off and refuse to take offense, even when offense is offered. That, to me, seems like a wiser path. But you don't get nearly as much press coverage. You don't get as much social media buzz. You don't get a bounce, you know, from from simply being a decent human being and acknowledging, yeah, you know, that's uh, that's where I have a difference of opinion. It seems to take some kind of a tantrum. When we come back, we're going to talk about the new national pastime. And by the way, it ties into all this. What could replace our love of baseball? Well, Paul O'Brien says the new not-so-great American pastime is pretending. And by the way, you and I have both been invited to pretend along with everybody else. We'll cover that the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part by great sponsors like the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. And if you are part of the influx to the Intermountain West, particularly if you are landing in the state of Utah, this is a name that you want to remember. Again, it's Heather Turner, Patriot Home Mortgage. I mean, look, I don't have to tell you, this is the hottest real estate market probably most of us have ever seen. And what that means is there's intense competition for what homes are available on the market. So you better have your financing squared away, and I mean squared away right now. And this is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes in. Heather has decades of experience in the lending industry. She knows how to take care of the lenders as well as the borrowers, making sure that every one of those needs is met so that things can happen quickly. From VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, even if you need to refinance your existing home loan, count on the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They're located at 619 South Bluff in St. George, Tower 1 and 2. You can call 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. And there is a link in the show notes if you need any of that information. You can find that at thebrianhydeshow.com. So let's talk about our new national pastime. This is from Paul O'Brien. This was published on American Thinker. He says, for more than three decades, I played, I played organized baseball. Little League, Pony, Colt, Thoroughbred, High School, College, Semi-Pro, and Scouting teams. And then in a fairly competitive men's league. Pardon the archaic expression. He says, the national pastime was assuredly also my personal pastime, my passion and my pleasure. Setting aside Major Major League Baseball's current self-inflicted infirmity, in other words, it's flirtation with progressive politics and pop culture, he says, it saddens me to see the game relinquish its traditional identity as America's pastime. Open any newspaper or magazine, click on just about any website, take a look at any TV show or movie that's been produced in the last year, Take a look at any random advertisement, and you cannot help but conclude that America has wholly embraced a new pastime, pretending. Now, Paul O'Brien says, let's not pretend. Pretending is no longer simply child's play. It is the zeitgeist. As a people, we are encouraged, even expected, to pretend that an athlete born as a boy has no advantage over those born as a girl once the erstwhile boy declares his female identity and perhaps dresses the part. Meanwhile, students and teachers must obey the corruption of the English language, 
never letting on that they know of the deceit when using the preferred pronouns of folks who pretend to believe that humans are in, come in virtually limitless genders and that gender and sex are entirely unrelated matters. He says, when discussing scientific theories, we are ordered to accept the science, a paradox bathed in irony. In explaining things as disparate as climate change and the efficacy of cloth and paper face masks in preventing the spread of a virus. We're even urged to engage in the fantasy that our nation was founded in order to facilitate slavery. And that we rebelled against the king and country that kept us in bondage for that reason. And not for any of the enumerated grievances in the document that actually declared our independence. In more tangible ways, he says it gets even worse. Failing to pretend will get one banned from social media platforms and targeted for doxing by avid pretenders. And perhaps in extreme case, he says, I have a friend who was expelled from his church membership in Santa Monica, California, because he refused to prostrate himself, apologize for his whiteness, and pledge his loyalty to Black Lives Matter. Now, he says, my friend was born and raised in Ireland. And I wondered why the slavery imposed over 150 years ago in this country would be imputed to him on the basis of his complexion. Clearly, he needs to work on his pretending skills. Perhaps the easiest example of pretending is CNN. It pretends to be a news organization, a reliable source, journalistic in its approach. Its sillier sister, MSNBC, at least affords viewers some respect by delivering its preposterous daily scripts via personalities so cartoonish in visage, voice, and delivery that one cottons on rather quickly to the shtick. Propagandizing, after all, differs from pretending. Paul O'Brien says both networks amount to 24-7 televangelism for leftist doctrine. But CNN folks are obvious hypocrites, while MSNBC's on-air personalities seem to be actually insane. He says the executives at each of these cultural ministries are culpable of felony pretending, while their audiences are essentially accomplices after the fact. Now, he says our president also clearly enjoys pretending. For example, he's maintained that voter integrity laws... In other words, making it harder to cheat on elections are tantamount to Jim Crow 2.0 and that climate change represents an existential threat. Meanwhile, congressional Democrats pretend that the couple of hundred unarmed, mostly middle-aged Trump supporters who wandered around the Capitol building on January 6th, largely staying within rope lines and admonishing the few rowdier ones to behave, constituted an insurrection. Both the president and the Democrat leadership absurdly claim, with straight faces no less, that white supremacist domestic terrorists are an existential threat to the nation. Helpful hint. Whenever a politician uses the term existential threat, he or she is probably pretending. Now, the evidence, however, shows a far greater threat to the nation is the politicians themselves. So, for example, Joe Biden is famous for his gaffes, but the litany of Joey B's lines that the White House and DNC struggle to clarify, place into context, and deny by parsing, portray a fellow who's evolving concern for by a BIPOC, that's B-I-P-O-C, Americans, is dubious at best. As if to save the president from further scrutiny of his <clears throat> history of racial insensitivity, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island took center stage this week. White House, who routinely savages Republicans as white supremacists, was questioned regarding his membership in an elite, exclusively white beach club in Newport. He has maintained and will maintain his membership, 
because he recognizes the club needs to progress and he might be part of that growth. Now that is varsity-level pretending. But it isn't just the political branches. The Supreme Court once pretended the Constitution of the United States not only included a right to privacy that trumps the right to life, but that it also discovered the right emanating from a penumbra. Previous jurists, as well as our founders, had simply missed it, blinded, one must surmise, by the intensity of the glow. America's courts are remarkably adept at pretending, bringing deeper meaning to the expression legal fiction. Now, the courts and politicians are pikers, though, when compared to academics and activists. Critical race theory infected and infested the American public school system because educrats and administrators cowed school boards into adopting curricula and texts that set history on its head, eviscerate grammar, condemn traditional values, encourage racial animus, and groom children to be collectivists. They laughably label math as racist and even more wickedly pretend that crime will subside if we cripple law enforcement. All the while, they pretend their aim is education, not indoctrination. Now, this new national pastime is pernicious, he says. Ever since Major League Baseball, bowing to BLM, relocated the All-Star game from Denver to Denver, rather from Atlanta, pretending that Georgia's new voter integrity law would suppress the vote, he says, I've pretended to detest professional baseball. Now, Paul O'Brien says, my wife will tell you, my TV viewing habits betray a hyper-hypocrite in this regard, but I cannot hate baseball. My love of the game is in my DNA. It preempts the visceral temper tantrum that would cause me to throw out the proverbial baby. Any pretending I do prospectively will be in the telling of my on-field exploits. He says, my prayer is that CRT's victims in schools and the workplace, the citizens subjected to the nonsensical rantings of politicians, the society burdened by the sophistries of judicial monsters and the visceral temper tantrums of educrats, as well as the readers and viewers of most media outlets today, will resist pretending. He says, I pray they will not go along to get along, that their own actual experience and empirical data will cause them to reflectively consider reality and then conclude we are the posterity to whom the founders bequeathed the blessings of liberty. And he says, I pray that they realize their love of America is in their DNA. And I know I must do even more than pray. Paul O'Brien says, Americans, hold fast. We are in mid-season in this fight. We must prove ourselves in the dog days of August, at the school board meetings, on social media, at the water cooler, in the classrooms and conference rooms, at the stadiums and concert halls. Wherever the enemy lies, we must bludgeon it with the truth. He says, I'm confident we can win, but only if we stop pretending, the problem will simply go away. Pretty good stuff. And I think he, he scores a few direct hits on some points of truth that not a lot of people are willing to consider. Now, when we come back the other side of the break, I'm going to share with you the story of the banjo player from Mumford & Sons. I don't know if you're familiar with this band. I only got acquainted with them a few years ago, and that was through my kids. Um, very successful, very popular. I won't say that I'm a huge fan, but, uh, but I, don't, uh, I don't dislike their music. I think they're very talented. They deserve their immense success. Why would their banjo player resign from the band when they are clearly, you know, at the apex of popularity. Cancel culture, plain and simple. We'll tell you his story, the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So, I got two quick articles I want to touch on here in the remaining moments of the show. Before I go there, I want to tell you I, I had a chance to, uh, to visit Monticello College over the weekend. And I want to give a quick shout out just because there's a slight chance that uh, some of the students I spoke to uh, may be tuned in and, and listening. And I, first of all, you were a wonderful audience. You are incredible people. It's, I'm a better person for having met you. And, and secondly, if you haven't checked out the link that I have on my show notes page, uh, which is to MonticelloCollege.org, if you want to see what a true liberal arts education on a living campus looks like, I, I can't think of, of anybody else that I know of who's doing an education like this, and I believe it is an education for our time. Very, very worthwhile. It is uh, far removed from the glamour and pomp and circumstance of so much of academia, but the, the results are really great human beings with wisdom and courage and diplomacy and the ability to move the cause of liberty in the right direction. In other words, it's, it's worth a look. I hope you'll take a look. MonticelloCollege.org. Let's talk about Winston Marshall's brilliant stand against cancel culture. This is from Brendan O'Neill. This was from Spiked Online. He says, there's something stirring and sad about Winston Marshall's goodbye letter to Mumford & Sons after he found himself in the eye of a Twitter storm for praising the work of anti-Antifa journalist Andy No. Now, it's stirring because we have a public figure here making an enormous sacrifice, leaving the band he loves in order that he might more freely express his political beliefs. Now, that is rare in this age in which celebrities, columnists, and politicians usually respond to Twitter mobbing with abject policies, mistakenly believing that public displays of atonement will appease the thought police. Of course, it does the opposite. Apologies embolden the cancel culture mob. They feast on retractions. The thrill of having successfully forced someone to recant just deepens their lust for power. So to see Marshall stand up for himself feels bracing. His offense was that he tweeted favorably about Andy No's book, Unmasked, Inside Antifa's Radical Plan to Destroy Democracy. Now, the woke left fantasizes that Antifa's Fisher-Price revolutionaries, its pampered TikTok vanguard, its masked middle-class activists who love beating up journalists and punching stupid working-class Trump supporters, are the 21st century equivalent of the international brigades. So anyone who takes the side of Mr. No, who recognizes that Antifa is actually a bunch of dangerous a-holes, must be evil. And that includes Marshall. The reaction to Marshall's pro-no tweet even by the standards of today's viral inquisitions, was deranged. He was branded scum, alt-right, a fascist. The canceling fury was so intense that Marshall did apologize initially and then disappeared from public view. Now he's back with his goodbye letter to his band, and he explains why his first response to the storm was to say, sorry for having caused offense. Quote, in the mania of the moment, I was desperate to protect my bandmates. The hornet's nest that I had unwillingly hit had unleashed a black-hearted swarm on them and their families. That's how ferocious and unforgiving digital witch hunts have become. It's not just you, the speech criminal, who will be hounded and libeled. So too will your friends, your family, your associates. Denounce yourself to save them and possibly save yourself. That's the unspoken creed of the modern mob that will harry for days anyone who deviates from its ideological narrative. But now Marshall is retracting his retraction. He's been reflecting... Reading and listening, he says. 
and he now feels that his previous apology in a small way participates in the lie that left-wing extremism does not exist. He strongly believes that Antifa extremism is as problematic as far-right extremism. And in order to be able to express this truth that he's arrived at through reflection and consideration, he is leaving Mumford and Sons. He says, I could retain and continue, I could remain rather and continue to self-censor, but it will erode my sense of integrity, gnaw my conscience. Now, Brendan O'Neill says that's an incredibly important stand to take. Because self-censorship is the most insidious form of censorship in the early 21st century. The knowledge that a witch hunt can be formed in mere minutes on social media and that its baying members will happily demonize, denounce, and even call for the sacking of any thought criminal who questions transgenderism or refuses to genuflect to BLM or wonders out loud if Antifa might actually be a bit fa, <laughs> as in fascist, has nurtured a culture of self-silencing, of keeping one's opinions to oneself in order to not fall foul of the new selected guardians of correct thought. It takes a lot of guts to do what he's doing. Brandon O'Neill says polls show that many people feel they can't express their true thoughts on a range of issues. This is the most sinister accomplishment of cancel culture. The worst thing about cancel culture isn't the huge spectacles of denunciation, the blacklisting of Jess DeWalls, the violent threats against J.K. Rowling, the extraction of apologies from celebs or politicians who misspeak. No, it's the chilling impact that these noisy social media show trials have on public life more broadly. They send the message to the rest of us, shut up or else. Keep your foul views to yourself. Silence your inner dissenter. And in refusing to do this, Marshall reminds us how important it is to be honest with ourselves, to be honest about what we think. He quotes Alexander Solzhenitsyn, And he who is not sufficiently courageous to defend his soul, don't let him be proud of his progressive views. Don't let him boast that he's an academician or a people's artist, a distinguished figure or a general. Let him say to himself, I am a part of the herd and a coward. It's all the same to me as long as I'm fed and kept warm. Now, Brendan O'Neill says there's also a sad side to Marshall's letter to the fact that he felt he had to abandon his band in order to speak his mind. This confirms how grim and punishing public life has become under the metaphorical boot of wokeness. Ours is a culture that refuses to tolerate diversity of thought or any kind of demurring from the new orthodoxies. Speak critically, you could lose your job, everything, your reputation, your band. Marshall's letter will do little to convince participants in cancel culture whose self-righteousness long ago eclipsed their capacity for reason. But surely it will encourage those who have thus far been silent about cancel culture in the misplaced belief that their cowardice will protect them from the cancelers. And it's time for them to start speaking up. Because a climate in which you must give up everything just to be able to speak your mind is one that is very dark and very dangerous indeed. That is pretty powerful stuff. And, you know, there's a, it, it's kind of a mixed blessing. On the one hand, I really enjoy being able to speak my mind. I enjoy that I, I have the freedom to, to hold forth and, you know, right or wrong. I mean, I'm trying to do best. I'm trying to, to do my best by the truth. But uh, thankfully, knock on wood, at this point, I'm just not important enough. I'm not known enough to be considered a threat by the cancel mob. But it can happen to any of us. And should it happen to you, should it happen to me, I think first and foremost, we should probably view it as a badge of honor. 
that first of all, that we got noticed, and secondly, that we must be having some kind of impact. What's the old saying? You know, you don't really take flack until you're over the target. So, some food for thought. I'll have a link to Brendan O'Neill's article in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. One final note here, an excellent article I'm going to include about how the market drives down costs. This is from Ethan Yang from the American Institute for Economic Research. I don't know if you're feeling, you know, a little bit uh, concerned as you see consumer prices going up. They definitely are. But if you want to count your blessings, this would be a great place to start. Ethan says one of the greatest features of modernity is that living standards tend to gradually improve rather than remain largely stagnant, as they did for millennia before 1750 or so. He says today ordinary people have access to goods and services that the royalty of centuries past would never have thought of. Air conditioning, air travel, cell phones, personal computers, automobiles, modern hospitals, antibiotics, GPS. The list goes on. This improvement is largely due to the robust market economy that through competition encourages innovation rather than stagnation and complacency. As new technology arises and productivity per person increases, access to goods and services spreads and the overall wealth of society increases. And he has some great charts included in here that will help tell the tale. In a, you know, for those who are more visual learners, he just, he, he's pointing out here, the market forces of competition and price sensitivity, combined with increasing productivity that leads to higher wages, allow our living standards to rise. So no matter how poor or rich you consider yourself, it's a safe bet. You're living better than royalty did even just a few generations ago. However, he says government policy, Ethan Yang warns, government policies and perverse incentives can shield service providers from market forces, undermining competition and eroding our standards of living. Bottom line is, if you want a free market, you've got to let it be a free market. It can't be, well, it's a mostly free market. We just have a little bit of, you know, government regulation and little government planning and central planning here and there. Free markets, free enterprise, voluntary cooperation. Keep them as free from government as possible and just watch how the prosperity increases. This is The Brian Hyde Show.